Michael Waits Media, telling Asia's stories. We are on high. This is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Smita Agarwal, a global investments advisor at Flourish Ventures. I got it right this time. Smita, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you. I am excited. Before we get into the main part of our conversation, let's give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context. Sure, Michael. As you just introduced me, I am uh, with Flourish Ventures, and I must say that I'm an accidental VC. It was not something that was planned. You know, I'm a chartered accountant by qualification, and soon after I finished my exams, I joined ICICI Limited in India, uh, which was a premier development financial institution then focused on project finance for large corporates. And so I began my career in project finance for large corporates. That was early 90s, and India had just kicked off the liberalization reforms and as the financial sector was opening up, uh, ICICI was at the fr- forefront. Within ICICI, I ended up then uh, moving on to doing different roles from project finance to moving to doing the liability side of raising foreign currency borrowings, uh, you know, both the international equity and external debt. And that gave me a whole new experience with large foreign lenders. And then by late 90s, ICICI forayed into consumer finance and I transitioned to doing retail banking and led their digital channels for a, you know, ICICI was the first ones amongst the banks in India to introduce internet banking, phone banking, mobile banking. It was very exciting times to be part of the new consumer banking innovations as they were unfolding. After a very fulfilling 15 years at ICICI, I moved to a domestic-owned NBFC in India and set up a rural lending business from scratch. From there, I then moved on to uh, the Reserve Bank of India, uh, which had a think tank, and I was part of that and got a peek into the policymaking process and get a vantage point view of the entire banking industry. After that, I was exploring different options where I wanted to leverage my past experience in financial services, but also do something different than what I had done before. And uh, VC investing fitted that bill very well. It was also perfect timing to jump into fintech investing as India had just embarked on its digital journey. The Aadhaar-based EKYC had been introduced, UPI was soon to be launched, and there was a fast emerging startup ecosystem brimming with new ideas. The broader South Asia and Southeast Asia region is turning out to be a hotbed of innovative business models. Um, Singapore, Indonesia, uh, Southeast Asia overall is the land of super apps, as we all know. I have now been a VC investor for six years, and it's a whole new world to discover. Very different from the world of banking, I must say. <laughs> wow. I don't even know where to start. Could you feel... And I think like you and I have had a similar experience, it sounds like, right? I started in the investment banking world in 1987 and I could feel this kind of slow march of technology coming in and making every business more productive and then watching it accelerate. Did you get that same feeling as you were going through every stage of your career as well? Absolutely, Michael. And I'm glad you say that because you've you've kind of been through that journey yourself. Yes. 
And I think it's important to kind of be in the thick of things to be able to feel that change and feel that future coming on. I think I was very, very fortunate and privileged to have been, you know, right in this epicenter of everything that was happening in financial services, but from very different vantage points, first Mm. as a banker, then as a, you know, uh, somebody who set up a greenfield uh, lending business as an operator, then as a regulator, and now as an investor. So I think, you know, it's just that you get to see uh, the changes happening, uh, but, you know, you're, you're putting on a different hat and looking at it from a completely different perspective, which is also very, very enriching. Yeah, I mean, it must be. I was going to ask you about this rural lending business that you set up. Do you feel like going into that part of the business, because I want to get to the Reserve Bank of India stuff as well, because I do think it gives you this sort of 360 degree view on what's happening in the financial world. But do you feel like setting up that rural bank, that rural lending business, kind of, what's the right word, that it colored your perspective on the necessity to make financial services more inclusive? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I have been, you know, this whole idea around financial inclusion and using fintech for inclusion as something that I've been extremely passionate about for a long time, uh, starting with my days at ICICI, um, you know, very long time ago. Uh, but at that time, it was kind of that concept of using technology for inclusion was uh, was a concept that was ahead of its time because most people did not have access to technology. Right. Uh, uh, and that scenario has completely changed today. You actually have a very large population that is completely connected because they have a mobile in the hand and they have access to mobile internet. And so it completely it completely provides a new paradigm with which you can work. And suddenly all those customer segments, which were considered unviable uh, for banking, are now your most attractive customer base to uh, to target and serve. Yeah, for no other reason than there are just so many of them, right? And it's not just in India. It's through, like you said, it's throughout Southeast Asia, South Asia. There's just a massive amount of people that are now connected in a way that they couldn't have been connected before. And it opens the door to be able to provide them with incredible financial services. And later, I'll share a story with you that um, Dehendra Maivanashi, the fa- one of the founders of Turtlement, was sharing with me. But we can get to that in a bit. I want to come back to, again, just get a little more context and explain to our listeners what Flourish Ventures exactly is and how it's different from maybe a more traditional venture capital company. So Flourish uh, uh, Ventures is an early stage evergreen global venture fund with around $500 million under management and a patient long-term approach to deploying capital. We are part of the Omidyar group and Pierre Omidyar, who you probably all know as Mm. the founder of eBay, is our sole LP. Our our overarching investment thesis is that Flourish backs entrepreneurs whose innovations advance financial health and prosperity through their uh, business models. Um, Our firm is a global firm. We operate in multiple geographies. Uh, We have a portfolio of around 65 companies with more than 20 investments currently in South Asia and Southeast Asia. Our entire approach to investing is that technology-driven innovation and business models can actually play a huge role in improving 
improving the financial lives and economic empowerment for uh, underserved communities. And when I say underserved, they need, they need not necessarily be the poor, right. but uh, uh, underserved. So, for example, SMEs, small businesses, small merchants, they are highly active economically, but they have been traditionally ignored by the formal uh, uh system they part they are more part of the informal economy similarly gig workers or uh, low-income households um, so essentially our focus is how we can back entrepreneurs who are coming up with innovations uh, to serve these uh, customer base and actually here's where I would like to point out that there is you know in Southeast Asia I think it's it's very important that the entire context is so uh, different from the U.S. and U.K. because here we have 70% of the 650 million people in the region that are still unbanked. And so the key pain points are not high fees or bad service, but access itself is still the biggest issue. And therefore, the business models uh, that are required to serve these customer base uh, or to serve the informal uh, uh, economy of these countries is very different uh, from what we see happening in the developed markets. Yeah, I mean, it's not even close, right? There are almost, uh, Southeast Asia is also home to a large micro and small business space comprising almost 90% of the population. And they contribute a significant chunk of, you know, anywhere between 30 to 50% to GDP, but they remain largely excluded from the formal financial sector. Yeah, this is a statistic that I want people to really understand. And I talk about it as often as I can. This idea that something like 30, it's probably yeah, somewhere between 40 and 55% of the entire economy in Thailand as well, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in the Philippines, in India as well, is driven by the small and medium-sized enterprises that have been, as you said, mostly not participating in the traditional financial world. And now they, now they can. I, I also want to understand how, like, what the benefits are of having one limited partner. So in most cases, let's just go through this a little bit, right? In most cases, a venture capital fund is made up of a group of limited partners, a general partner that invests their money for them, that takes fees based on assets under management. So that there's an incentive for them to have a fund that's as big as possible so they can make as much money as possible. And they have to make tons of investments quickly, not tons, but faster than you may want to do because there's a limited lifespan in most cases for every fund that they have. Can you explain the difference here for Flourish that has one limited partner and a really long-term view? And I believe, and tell me if I'm wrong here, doesn't have the same sort of mixed incentives that a typical LPGP fund has. It can literally invest no money or a lot of money at any time. Is that, is that correct? So, you know, the advantage, so first of all, the distinction for Flourish versus the other typical VC funds is we are not actually structured as a typical fund with, right. a, f with a fixed uh, uh, term life. And therefore, we are not guided by our, by our maturity to decide on our investment decisions or our exit decisions. And so we are actually guided completely by what's in the interest of the company that we invest in. Uh, so, for example, our exits would not be 
timed according to the life cycle of our fund or when we need to go out and do a new fundraise and therefore we need to show a certain performance. So that I think is the biggest difference between and that's why we call ourselves an evergreen patient capital provider because we are not guided by those uh, uh, motivations of having a life cycle of our fund that we need to manage. Exactly. Can we talk in a little bit more detail about embedded finance, a term we hear a lot, and why we think that that's so important, particularly in Asia? Sure. So until a few years ago, we are all familiar with the world of finance being, hey, if you needed anything to do with financial services, whether you wanted to open a savings account or or you wanted to borrow money or you wanted to make a payment to someone, there's a dedicated a specialized institution called a bank and you go there and you do what you need to do. If you decided to buy a house, you would separately, you would go around looking for a house, you know, finalize, you know, which is the best home that you would like, what are the, you know, what's the price, what you want to do, figure out how you want to fund it, and then separately go and do the paperwork and go and make an application to your bank or to a loan provider or to a mortgage provider and give all the details and then say, hey, this is why I need uh, you to give me a loan of X amount of dollars and, you know, be funded. So the world of banking and finance was very specialized, very distinct from the rest of the you know, day-to-day life transactions that we would do. Yes. And I think that being the case was one of the big reasons why uh, financial services only uh, were able to reach a, a certain limited number of people. And again, in the context of Southeast Asia, this is very, very relevant because almost 70% of the population out of the 650 million people here are either unbanked or underbanked because the banking services or financial services simply have not been able to reach them. And so the whole idea of embedded finance is to be able to offer financial services which are contextual and provided when the customer needs it and where the customer needs it. A very common example that everybody will be able to relate to is the example of a buy now, pay later uh, product, which is you're making a purchase, you're buying something, you're buying groceries, or you know, which is a day-to-day thing that we all do. And in that moment, as you are making your decision, okay, how do I make the payment for this purchase that I've just made? There is an option for you to get credit and, you know, pay for it through a credit that you have just been approved exactly at that point of time. And so that's a great example of how finance is embedded along with another use case that is a daily routine use case that customers are typically used to doing. And it's not a separate standalone process where you go buy, you've decided you want to buy grocery and then you go to some other place, go to the bank and say, hey, guess what? I need to buy groceries and can you give me a loan to buy these groceries? And here's my application form and here are my credentials and here's my proof of income and here's you know my ability to repay this loan back to you. And now I wait for you to approve it and then I go back and <laughs> fulfill the transaction of buying groceries. It sounds like a nightmare. I I love this idea of BNPL because it's the perfect example of 
allowing something that's literally been around forever. Like when we were kids, most people don't know this, but when I was a kid, we grew up poor. So if my mother wanted to go buy us clothes, she had to do BNPL. They called it layaway. The only problem is, first of all, we couldn't get the goods until we finished paying for it, right? Hence the term layaway. You lay it away until you can make the four or five payments to buy those pants or those sneakers. But the other thing was that it was very manual. And the beauty of BNPL is it combines that with technology to create scale, which fits into this investable model that we've been talking about. And the difference between an SME and a sort of innovation business, right, an IDE or an innovation-driven enterprise, and the BNPL seems to be such a good example of that. Is that fair? This is a, a very important thing to understand that financial services are a very essential lubricant in our day-to-day lives. But that's not what we get up and do. Our core uh, work is we go, uh, you know, uh, it's not about getting up and saying, hey, I want to take a loan today. Hey, I want to buy insurance. Right. No, these are tools that are available to smoothen our day-to-day lives, to help us manage our economic lives better. And therefore, it's very, very essential that the financial services are very seamlessly integrated into what our uh, day-to-day lives look like. And therefore, contextualization, I think, is the most important uh, piece of that whole concept of embedded finance. And how do you look at literacy, so financial literacy as a thing, driving or helping to drive financial inclusion in the sense that if you don't understand what the available products are, and like you said, the available services or just the available choices you have, you can't even make a decision on what's right or wrong for you in the context, as you said, this this idea of embedded being contextual. So what role does financial literacy play from your perspective and maybe from Flourish's perspective as well? It's very important that the that the consumer completely understands, has all the information available to make the decision in her interest. You know, the whole concept of financial literacy, I think, is to make financial products so intuitive that you do not need an expert to understand it. You know, another analogy that I'd like to give, all of us use smartphones, you know, and even the people who are not very educated, you know, use smartphones. And how many people have you come across who will open up a a manual and try to understand how to use this smartphone? Zero. Very rarely you would find anybody doing that. Why? Because the entire UI UX is so intuitive. And the need for using that product is so high that people figure it out. And I think that's the same concept that needs to be applied to financial services, that it has to be very intuitive, that it's, you know, we have to de-jargonize financial services so that it just is very simple and transparent for uh, any consumer to understand, is this what is the right thing for me to take? Right. I mean, we talked a little bit offline about de-jargonizing things. And I remember very clearly from my time on uh, sitting on a trading desk about hitting the bid and lifting the offer. And when you go out into the real world, nobody knows what that means. But traders like to use that terminology out in the real world and people think they're insane. And the real thing is like, what's the price at which you're willing to sell and what's the price that you'd like to pay to buy that? It just It's so much easier for people to understand. It's not tricky, right? It's just jargonized. And you're right, the, the smartphone is the perfect analogy. It's why you see babies swiping at paper magazines trying to move things around because it's just so intuitive. That's the only thing that makes sense, right? 
Absolutely. And I think a lot of the uptake of financial services is also about having products and services that are relevant to the consumer. Yeah. You know, instead of having a supply side view of, hey, this is a product that I've designed and I've got, and I now I'm going to go out and stick it to as many people as I can, nice. versus, hey, let me try and understand who is this customer, what is her pain point, and how can I f- offer a solution that would work for her? Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. I want to understand how you would characterize your experience of investing in frontier markets, you know, like Thailand, like Indonesia, like Bangladesh. And how is that different from the experience that your colleagues are having, your global firm, in developed markets like the United States? Actually, it's it's very exciting and there are challenges. The exciting part about it is that it's kind of a virgin territory and there's just so much new to explore. There's huge potential in these markets, which is yet to be tapped. And therefore, you know, the potential to create impact is really, really high. You know, small amounts of intervention can actually drive a huge uptake and drive huge amount of growth. So that's the most exciting part about being in these markets. And I personally have had experience of being one of the very early foreign institutional investors in Bangladesh when we made our first investment in Shopap in 2018. Right. And, uh, you know, I think the first thing when you're entering a new market is to actually get comfortable with the overall macro picture of the country yes. and what's happening and how is that trajectory. And and, and that is really what uh, struck us when we, when we started to evaluate uh, Bangladesh, you know, it, it, it's been one of the fastest growing economies in Asia consistently for six, seven years. And the other in, very interesting point about Bangladesh was that it had seen a huge amount of internet and social media uptake. I was very intrigued to learn that Dhaka had the second highest uh, Facebook users in the world uh, right. just after Bangkok. Right. And so uh, there was this... Uh, you know, opportunity to to tap this entire digital uptake and channelize that into something productive, constructive. Uh, and I think they were just waiting to have business models that could allow consumers uh, to do that. I think the challenge part of going into a new market is the ecosystem is not that well developed. You do not have too many other investors that you could collaborate with. You do not have, you know, even for the founders, you know, having accelerators and having seed uh, or angel investors that can, you know, provide the much needed support at very early stage. That's not uh, very easily available. The the policy and, and regulations are not completely aligned to attract foreign capital. So there are all of those things that you are, you know, part of an early journey and that only then starts to open up as as you move along. Uh, so obviously it's a it's a less mature market. So there are things that you the in, entire infrastructure is not mm-hmm. as uh, as mature and as developed. And so there are many things that if you need to work, uh, if you need to solve for, you need to do it yourself rather than expect that there is somebody else that's already solving it and you can just partner with them. I think that has been one of my biggest learnings when you're part of an early 
market that you might need to get into many adjacencies yourself right. if you need to solve for it. For example, uh, in Indonesia, the e-commerce market took off very well. And as a result of it, you have enough and more players who who are providing all the add-on resources, for example, logistics. Uh, but in a market like Bangladesh, there were just no logistics players of the scale and quality that one would like to see. And so if you want to be successful in doing anything in commerce, maybe you need to also solve for logistics. And then the next thing you realize, hey, maybe you also need to solve for payments because there's nobody else doing that. So that's what I mean by getting into adjacencies yourself because the market is not yet mature and does not have uh, specialized players in every field. Yeah, I mean, you make a really good point when you're talking about these adjacencies, right? When I spoke to Rosina Mazumder, who's the CEO of Aroga, so also building a business in Bangladesh that needs to build its own logistics side of the business because they're, they're do fundamentally doing pharmacy delivery. The other interesting thing that I learned about Dhaka is it's either the most or the second most densely populated city in the world. So it makes the ability to solve the logistics problem just different than it is everywhere else as well. And I think if you go to other ecosystems and ask them how many people live in Bangladesh, I don't think that they'd have any idea that there are almost 170 million people there. And that's why I love this idea of being out here. You're right. The excitement of not just early stage investing, but frontier investing means we get to see things so early. And that early stage investment makes it so exciting because the upside is so big and the downside, at least in my mind, is, is so limited. Anyway, really interesting stories around that frontier style investing. Does that make sense? And I would say even within these, you know, emerging markets, if you if you just take countries like India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, they have many things in common. They are large, fast growing economies with rapid mobile Internet adoption. And they also all have a huge informal sector and right. underbanked population, which makes them fertile ground for fintech innovation. And it's very interesting to work across multiple countries because you can take learnings from one market and apply to the other. Yes. For example, India is far ahead of others in the digital payment space. And when we look at startups in Indonesia, there's a lot of ideas that they can get on what worked well. And you can actually leapfrog many generations of innovation by being a late mover because you can, you know, you can learn from what others have done. Looking at this, these countries in Asia is, is a really exciting uh, uh, space to be in. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I like to say half sarcastically, but half truthfully, is I feel like I can see the future. Because I know the things, or at least I feel like I know the things that need to get built, particularly the adjacencies, right? Because there's no way you can build a robust e-commerce business without the right logistics and the right payments in space, because it's not going to work. One has seen this playbook, you know, rolled out in other countries, and you can actually, you know, see that and you know, learn from that and use it uh, to your advantage. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was going to make the point of with this UPI, right? So the unified payments interface developed in India allowed the payment sector and just the whole fintech sector to explode, right? It would have been really hard to do that without it. And if I'm correct, they're thinking about trying to roll that out or export it to other countries as well. It's just a fascinating idea, right? I think there are some some building blocks that are absolutely essential for every country to have in order to become a digital economy. You know, having a digital identity uh, is the first step and then having, 
interoperable digital payments. I think the key is interoperability. A lot of the countries have a huge uptake of different uh, forms of digital payments and e-money and right. wallets. Uh, but what many of them lack is, is a seamless interoperability across uh, all form factors. And that makes a huge difference. And then, of course, the other big thing that is really important now is the whole ability to exchange and use data. And I think, again, in the context of countries in Asia, in Southeast Asia, South Asia, that's very, very important because most customers here don't come with a track record of income or borrowing that they can demonstrate on paper. And so data is really their only tool and currency in a way to get and in into the formal financial world and ability to use that data securely and to the advantage of the customer is a very important piece. And now we have those models that are emerging, of course, in India, they have formed the account aggregator concept that allows people to right. do that in countries like Indonesia. We have companies like Brick who are creating that API infrastructure for a seamless exchange of data between uh, consumers and the data providers who host that data. So I think there's a huge opportunity to actually use data for the benefits of consumer and, be, and being able to offer good products to them. Payment rails, data understanding, data interoperability, infrastructure interoperability, excuse me, all these things are super important. And you're right, just the ability to watch all this stuff gets built is super exciting. When you're going out to make investments, do you have a profile in mind for an entrepreneur or are there little hints that you get from them? And I'll tell you why. I feel like over the past four or so years during the time that I've been doing these 800 conversations, mostly, mostly with founders, that I can get a really good sense if they're going to build something that's investable in the 30 or 40 minutes that I spend with them doing this. What, what's your take on how you determine who's going to be make a good investment and who's not? Yeah, I'm sure every investor has a different answer to this question and there are different things that each one may be looking for. There are a few things that I do look for. So first of all, as an early stage investor, you know, founder is, is a very important piece of uh, decision making because at that point when your business is so early, it's just a concept and an idea that you're working with and you still have to, you know, go out and uh, prove uh, whether it works or not. I think the founder market fit is is a very important determination. Right. And there are a few things that I that I uh, try to look for. for. First of all, I have huge respect for everybody who's an entrepreneur. You know, it just takes a lot to be an entrepreneur because every morning you have to get up fully excited and charged up that, hey, this is what I want to do, despite so many people telling you this is not going to work. <laughs> exactly. So I have tremendous respect for anybody who decides to be an entrepreneur. And and the first thing that I try to understand is what is their motivation to become an entrepreneur and to start this business? What is prompting you to do this? What's your backstory of why you decided to do this? And I think that's really important because it's that is what grounds your conviction. Because when the going is not good, and that's very often, that motivation is going to keep you going. And so for me, that's the, that's one thing that I always look for. Why are you here? Why are you doing what you're doing? 
the other skill that is, of course, I mean, I'm not even referring to all the domain expertise and the skills that you need right, to right, have. Right. I, either, you know, I'm not referring to all of that. That's a that's like table stakes you need right, to that's have. That's a it. given. That's a given. But the other skill that is really important is, um, you know, ability to to adapt. Uh, a lot of times, what you decided and what you put out as your plan will not be what you end up doing because guess what by the time you got started the world around you changed the regulation changed the competition did something different and i think it's really important that you while you're focused on implementing and you know executing what you decided to do you have your eyes and ears open to to continuously scan what's going on around you and adapt to that environment. Uh, and we saw this actually playing out really well during, during COVID. I mean, the founders and the companies that have emerged stronger are the ones that actually were able to adapt to this completely unprecedented event that happened. Nobody expected it to happen. Right. Everybody was taken aback. But many of them actually benefited and took advantage they pivoted they adapted they changed they did a lot of things and they ended up emerging stronger yeah i agree look one of the biggest benefits for me as a kid who grew up in like 17 different places is the ability to adapt and i think if as you said if you're not paying attention to what the market's doing as well and what's changing around you you're just going to get run over and you are right the pandemic was the perfect example of that i want to end with this you've had this incredible career and you've been on i don't won't even say both sides of the table you've been on every side of the table it's like this big circular table and you've it seems like you've sat in every seat that's there how would you and i work with people that are doing this that are building you know gender lens investment strategies but just on a wider scale how would you or how could you encourage females to enter the same world that you've entered and maybe through a different door, if that's fair. I think there is definitely a need for more women to be in every field. I mean, be it in the uh, world of investing, in the field of uh, banking, in the field of fintech. Any uh, area you look at, I think we should definitely see many, many more women than right. they are today, uh, including many more women founders. I think the field is, I mean, every area is open. Each one should actually choose what's passionate to you. And then I think one thing that has worked for me is to, in anything that I did, it's important that you go deep enough to build uh, some sort of an expertise in that field. Don't, don't remain superficial in anything that you're doing, because that is what is going to build your skill set over time. So uh, so my first advice would be choose what you're passionate about and be go deep, build build expertise around whatever you're doing. And three, I think, you know, just as I was saying that the founders need to look for adjacencies, I think at each one and in as part of your career as well, you need to look for adjacencies and find growth through that. Uh, so you've done something for some time and you feel, hey, I've really learned this and I've, I've done a great job, but I, I'm now keen to get my, you know, challenge myself and move out of my comfort zone, 
look for adjacency and make that move. Something that allows you to use and leverage what you already know and have done. At the same time, it's going to expose you to something different, something that you've never done, something that you don't know yet. So look for those adjacencies and you know, grow through that. That is the perfect way to end. Smita Agarwal, Global Investments Advisor at Flourish Ventures, and frankly, so much more. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Michael. I so enjoyed this. Thanks a lot.